Welcome back to Can He Do That?, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. The center of the news cycle this week has not quite been the president himself, but instead his oldest son, Donald Trump Jr. Yes, Donald Trump Jr. will be the he of this week's Can He Do That?, delving deep into Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with a Kremlin-connected Russian lawyer and his subsequent release of emails that led to that meeting. The meeting and those emails raised some questions that are integral to investigations into the Trump campaign and Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Donald Trump Jr., meanwhile, has suggested that his meeting was mere opposition research. For me, this was opposition research. They had something, you know, maybe concrete evidence to all the stories I'd been hearing about, but they were probably underreported for, you know, years, not just during the campaign. So I think I wanted to hear it out. But... So was Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with this Russian lawyer actually in violation of the law? And how does this fit into the investigation underway by Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller? To help us answer these critical questions, we have back on the show post-senior editor and author of Trump Revealed, Mark Fisher. Mark, thanks so much for coming back. It's always a total pleasure. Okay, so this past weekend... The New York Times releases this story that Donald Trump Jr. met with a Russian lawyer after being promised essentially damaging information about Hillary Clinton. What's happened in the immediate aftermath of that story? Well, that story developed over the course of a couple of days from a meeting occurred to a meeting occurred at which there was a possibility that the Russian government was providing some information. And then, of course, the email came out and the whole thing exploded because for the first time we have someone in the very inner circle of the Trump campaign and the Trump family explicitly saying, here's some stuff, damaging material about Hillary Clinton that's coming to us from Russian sources, from the Russian government. And yes, we really want that. That is a very big step forward for the investigators, for political observers who are looking at this and saying, okay, there's a lot of noise about Russian involvement in the Trump campaign's efforts to push back against Hillary Clinton. But where's the meat? Well, here's the first serving of meat. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how we know this. So after these stories come out from The New York Times, The New York Times talks to Donald Trump Jr., tells him that they're going to publish a story, asks for a comment by 11 o'clock a.m. At 11 o'clock a.m., Donald Trump Jr. tweets out a series of emails that he says are all of the emails that he had, the entire correspondence with Rob Goldstone. First, let's stop there for a second. Who is Rob Goldstone? So Rob Goldstone is a musical promoter, someone who worked with the guy in Russia who was a longtime business partner of Donald Trump in the years when Donald Trump would go over to Russia again and again looking to build hotels, looking to get some businesses going there. One of his partners in those discussions was this pop singer and his father. And the pop singer was represented in the United States and other parts of the world by this guy, Goldstone. And Goldstone was the one who made the offer, who said, hey, Donald Trump Jr., would you like to meet with a Russian attorney who has all sorts of juicy stuff about Hillary Clinton and the uh, Russian government is on the Trump campaign side and they want to get you this information? Would you like that? And Donald Trump Jr., now famous words, said, I love it. 
Right. So th- that, those are the details of the emails that Donald Trump Jr. tweeted out. Let's talk a little bit more about th- some of the specific language in those emails. We talked about I love it being the response that that Donald Trump Jr. laid out. One particular thing that Rob Goldstone said in his initial email that raises a, a flag of some kind, he says, this is obviously very high level and sensitive information, but it is part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump. So what do we make of that? Well, that's the first explicit statement that we've had from someone who was in a position to know saying that there was an offer made to the Trump campaign of information that had some sort of Russian source to it and someone from the Trump campaign, namely Donald Trump Jr., saying, yeah, we would like to see that and we'll meet with you and we did meet with you. Speaking specifically about Donald Trump Jr., at the time, what was his role on the campaign when he accepted this meeting? He's the candidate's son. Uh, And in Trump world, that's a very meaningful statement. So going back through recent presidencies, sons and brothers and other relatives of presidents or presidential candidates have been sometimes advisors, sometimes played an official role, sometimes been unofficial supporters, uh, sometimes been embarrassments. And so during the campaign, Don Trump Jr. was an advisor. He was someone who was advocating on behalf of his father in the media is a role that he continued even into the presidency, although he is theoretically quite separate from the White House. He has stayed behind in New York. He and his brother Eric are running the Trump family enterprises. Uh, But Donald Trump Jr. has remained very much in the public eye. He's a regular on Fox. He's someone who tweets quite actively in defense of his father and his father's policies. One question that keeps kind of bubbling up is, and of course, not to say it in the dramatic of what did the president know and when did he know it, but this question of when did Donald Trump find out about these meetings? What did he know about them? Well, President Trump has just said in the last few days that he found out about these meetings only very recently, only within the last few days. There is some evidence that he knew about it at least a week or so ago because he apparently approved Donald Trump Jr.'s original statement to The New York Times about those meetings. So uh, the president had obviously been informed at that point. So how has Trump reacted then since? Has he defended his son? Yes, but not as avidly as you might expect. Uh, If you look at the way Donald Trump reacts when there's significant criticism of his daughter Ivanka, he is effusive in his defense. He He gets outraged and he's very vocal about it. In the case of this email and Donald Trump Jr., the president has several times said that his son is a wonderful young man. He's 39, uh, and, uh, and he has said that, uh, that his son is innocent. So, again, I have a son who is a great young man. He's a fine person. He took a meeting with a lawyer from Russia. Uh, it lasted for a very short period, and nothing came of the meeting. And I think it's a meeting that most people... But it has not been the kind of fulsome, very active defense that we have come to expect from the president regarding his children. This is also part of a Russian storyline that's really just engulfed the White House this week and over the past several months. What is it like there? How are the key players in the White House reacting? Well, the president himself has been rather reserved. He was uh, kind of absent from the public eye for the first several days, very uncharacteristic of him. Washington Post reporting found that a lot of people in the White House were saying that the president was extremely angry about the way this had blown up. 
people in the White House were also saying that the president was kind of uh, pulling back. He was sort of reserved. He, he'd, he'd expected to come back from the G20 meetings to, to be hailed as someone who had pulled off a, a great success, uh, and that was going to roll into the week where they were finally going to move ahead on the health care replacement and, and repeal. And in fact, this has become the one big story again, Russia dominating the agenda. So there's been a lot of reaction that this is just not only one more drip in the drip, drip, drip of this scandal, but is really kind of ratcheting up of that kind of pressure on an administration that was already having a lot of trouble getting its agenda through. And how much of Trump's retreat, retreating from the public light do we think comes from lawyers? Is this the influence of lawyers telling him to step back? Does he listen to lawyers? I mean, is this what, what do we attribute this to? Well, th- this has been a battle going on in Trump world for decades where lawyers are frequently advising Donald Trump that you need to hold back, you need to stop shooting from the cuff, you need to stop being so impulsive. And as we've all learned, that's not really within the realm of possibility for Donald Trump. And so there was a period where he was clearly holding back Twitter and in other venues from uh, talking about this. And then it kind of broke through. And there was a morning this week where the president uh, came to his son's defense on Twitter and lashed out at the media as he often does. And so whatever advice he was getting to hold back didn't last very long, which is a a very strong pattern uh, in, in Donald Trump's behavior. Outside the White House, legal experts have reacted to the revelations, and among them is Vice Dean and Professor of Law at Cornell Law School, Jens David Olin. He explained exactly how the law applies in this particular circumstance. Here's Jens. So let's just start at what is the big question here, which is that if you're working on a campaign, is it legal or illegal to meet with a foreign government under the pretext of getting dirt on your opponents? Uh, I think it's not appropriate at all. It's one thing for a campaign or a campaign worker to engage in opposition research, which involves getting, quote unquote, dirt on your opponent. That's typical for a campaign. It's uh, probably an unfortunate aspect of our democratic process, but it certainly exists. What's not okay is meeting with a foreign government or even a foreign national to receive that information. That's the complication here. I don't even think it has to be a a foreign government. There's a absolute prohibition under federal law on receiving a foreign contribution to a campaign. So basically the way we've set up campaigns in our country is that they are supposed to be funded by contributions and assistance from any member of the public, but that is limited to Americans. We're not supposed to have contribution from outside the United States. The The issue here is the federal election laws restrict not only contributions that are monetary contributions, they also restrict receiving anything of value from a foreign national in connection with a, with a campaign. And that's where things get problematic. So if Donald Trump Jr. did, in fact, receive information from a foreign government to help in his father's campaign, would that be illegal? I, I think it is illegal. I noticed that Donald Trump Jr. and the campaign have insisted that this was just oppositional research and that that's what he received. And and I think they've tried to make that sound somehow less nefarious and uh, sort of more in keeping with what typical campaigns do. 
But I actually think it's the uh, the reverse. I think it was a big mistake for him to concede that what he was looking for was opposition research. And the reason I say that is because opposition research is something that a campaign might pay for. They might go to a political operative. Uh, they might hire a political consulting firm. They might hire investigators to produce opposition research. That means it's something of value because you could purchase it on the commodities market. Certainly, it's something that would help the campaign. And in fact, um, the Trump campaign was helped a lot by opposition research and, and dirt into Hillary Clinton. And so the fact that it was something of value makes it potentially a violation of uh, federal election law. Now, Donald Trump Jr. says, though, that in that meeting, he did not actually gain any information about Hillary Clinton that he had been seeking or that he had, you know, been the meeting had been set up under the pretext of he didn't actually get that information. Does that matter if his intention was to to get that information and he didn't actually get it? Uh, that's certainly a relevant point, but he wouldn't escape criminal liability just because the meeting failed to to yield any fruit. The reason I say that is because there are two companion concepts in the criminal law. One is conspiracy and the other is solicitation, and they're defined as inchoate crimes. And inchoate here is a you know sort of a technical uh, legal term in the in the criminal law, but it's it's a it's a pretty straightforward concept. And it means that an individual can be convicted of a crime even if the ultimate act to which the conspiracy or the solicitation is directed is never brought to fruition. Uh, the kind of classic example here is you can be guilty of conspiracy to commit murder or solicitation to commit murder even if the ultimate killing never happens. That brings up a point that I actually have a couple questions about. So you speak of conspiracy or solicitation. There's a couple of other words that have been thrown around in this discussion, collusion, coordination. Can you explain which one of these things actually has a legal definition that would apply in this case and which which of these things are just kind of terms that don't necessarily carry any legal weight? Well, let's start with the distinction between collusion and conspiracy because I think you're, you're smart to bring that up because that's been a constant refrain in the public discourse. And for, for my part, I'm a little bit surprised and, and a little bit confused that the public discourse has been so completely dominated by the language of collusion because you're right. It's collusion is not something that is terribly important in the legal analysis. It may very well be important in the political analysis. And it, collusion is also, I think, very relevant for the counterintelligence investigation. But if you turn to the criminal investigation, what really matters is conspiracy. And that does have a very specific definition under federal law. And the definition of a conspiracy is an agreement between two or more individuals to commit an unlawful act. So based on your legal expertise, where do the actions that we've seen from Donald Trump Jr. fall under these legal categories? I would say they fall within the realm of a, of a conspiracy or a solicitation. Uh, you know, that's because he was talking with other people about receiving opposition research, which would come from a foreign source, uh, in this case, uh, a foreign government and, and Russia. There's two you know, sort of conversations here that, that might be relevant. And I don't think people have sort of adequately distinguished between the two. One is the conversation between Trump Jr. and the Russian lawyer he met with. But there's an actually, there's a, there's a second conversation, which is the preliminary conversations he had over email 
with other members of the campaign before he even got into the meeting with the Russian lawyer. And I think those conversations, those initial conversations just between members of the campaign, those might be significant. In fact, I would almost describe those as conspiracy to solicit a violation of federal election law, meaning that the, the members of the campaign were conspiring with each other to then solicit a foreign national to assist them in the campaign. It's almost a kind of doubly inchoate crime. Now, from a legal perspective, I mean, my big question is why would Donald Trump Jr. release these emails that seem incriminating to so many legal experts, to so many analysts? Why would his lawyers want him to do this? Why did he do that? That's a very good question, but because I think any seasoned attorney um, would have probably recommended against it. I can think of two possible reasons. The first is knowing that the emails were already being released into the public domain, there was no question of the information being disclosed. And so by him proactively disclosing it, through Twitter, he at least gets some points for transparency. He can say, look, I have nothing to hide. The other sort of larger strategic benefit, and I don't think it's so much um, a legal answer as it is a political answer, the uh, Trump playbook, I think, is that when confronted with the kind of greatest criticisms, instead of sort of shying away from them and denying them, they often say, yes, of course, I concede that I did that. And so what? And they'll really sort of own it and uh, sort of attempt to justify it as, well, we're not doing politics as, as usual here. And the whole reason why the people elected me was because they wanted a kind of different style of leadership. So it really comes down to Will we see legal action from this? Well, from this specific transaction, you know, I don't think anyone should expect anything in terms of a prosecution to habit, uh, happen in the you know, coming weeks or even, even months. If, if something comes of this, it's going to be within the context of Mueller's investigation. What I would expect is that there will be one piece of the kind of you know final report, whether that's something that's publicly disclosed, I don't know. But in terms of you know the res the final results of the Mueller investigation, there will be one section devoted to this particular interaction between Donald Trump Jr. and his campaign associates and 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 the Russian lawyer. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see a, a recommendation for charges coming out of that. I don't think it's a capital offense. It's something that um, would not yield significant jail time. It's usually a fine associated with, a, uh, with violating election law. Although the fact that it's a conspiracy, that there's an interesting question that, that perhaps that will increase the, the, the possibility for more significant um, punishment Donald Trump Jr., as Jens mentioned, has repeatedly said that he was simply conducting opposition research. To learn about how it's usually conducted, we talked to Tracy Seffel, a Democratic political consultant and a former Clinton campaign staffer, about what it's really like to work in opposition research. Opposition research, the way we, we know it today, it's been around since the 1970s, essentially. Can you tell me a little bit about what opposition research actually is? Absolutely. And I might uh, go so far as to say it's been around since before the 1970s. Opposition research is a very misused, misunderstood term. A lot of people like to say oppo as if it's, you know, right out of a House of Cards episode. <laughs> The reality is something far more, well, mundane. 
opposition research is the process of creating an argument about your opponent that is supported by facts and figures. It's one thing to say you're not qualified to be president. It's another thing to say you're not qualified to be president, and here are 10 specific reasons why. And that's the opposition research part. That is the part for you know, anyone who remembers uh, writing a research paper in school, the tedium of having to provide citations for your work, for having to find original sources for things you want to assert. It's pretty boring. That's the dirty little secret. It's a lot of research, I imagine, a lot of siphoning through documents. It's sort of like journalism. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, it, although there's one big difference, and that is that a journalist is likely to have their name attached to their work. An opposition researcher is more likely than not to probably not even be acknowledged in any way. It is work that is done on background. It is work that is done to supplement other materials. Let's say there's a television ad that you're going to run. Opposition research would provide the stabilizing data behind the argument. Again, it's it's not sexy. Yeah. So a lot of your information, like you said, comes from documents, comes from research. Do you ever get tips or people flagging different things for you that they believe might be relevant or important? Oh, I love that question so much <laughs> because your podcast would go on for days if I really started sorting through um, the kinds of things that a researcher would receive unsolicited, always unsolicited from the general public. You know, people get invested in your campaign or your candidate. They want to be helpful. Maybe they know your opponent from some point in their life, but you cannot even begin to imagine the people that crawl out of the woodwork with ideas and suggestions and, hey, did you hear this or did you think about this? And, oh, have I got a story for you? Imagine having to be the person who's polite enough to listen but smart enough to know when to step away. Right. Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like to try to verify some of those stories. So are there major moments in history when opposition research has swayed public opinion? For George W. Bush's DUI arrest comes to mind. Are there moments like that that you can recall that's affected the outcome of elections or had a big impact on public opinion? There certainly have been moments. You know, I think about in 2004 when then-Senator John Kerry made the mistake, I'm sure in his mind, of going windsurfing. And someone caught that on camera, and it was turned into a really devastating ad against Senator Kerry that featured him to a Viennese waltz, you know, going back and forth um, windsurfing. And it solidified an argument that he was an elite, out of touch. You know, he was no George W. Bush. John Kerry. Whichever way the wind blows. Are there moments when opposition research crosses a line? Are there things that you might bring to authorities because it's just not kosher? Yeah. If I, if someone reached out to me and said, did I want to meet with an attorney connected with the Kremlin who had potentially incriminating information about the Democratic nominee for the president of the United States, I would call someone. I would call the campaign attorney. I would call the FBI. I would absolutely aggressively find a way to pass that information along. I, it's sort of um, that kid's game, hot potato. You know, you don't want to hold this. You don't want to touch this. 
I definitely have no personal recollection or experience of being solicited by an agent of a hostile foreign nation. So, Mark, Trump headed to France yesterday. He returned. Does that help anything? Does it sort of assuage the public when he can leave and do something abroad in a very presidential sense and come back? He's clearly come to like these foreign trips in a way. Uh, He was very nervous about them early on. If you recall back during the campaign, his first foreign trip as a candidate to visit with the president of Mexico, he was extremely nervous and reserved. He still has more reserve in the way he behaves in these encounters with foreign leaders, but he has realized that there is a benefit that he gets from appearing to be presidential in these kinds of settings. And so he's come to relish these visits as a way to change the agenda, get the agenda back on policy and on his successes. The visit to France was very brief. He's made a very brief joint appearance with President Macron, and it went well, but really it did not change the news agenda in any significant way. In fact, even as he was in France, the turmoil over new proposals on the health care front was kind of taking precedent as top story. And the Donald Trump Jr. uh, smoking gun story just would not go away. It continued to uh, kind of spin out, and the president was clearly frustrated by that. So speaking of other things that have changed as a result of this story, have we seen Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, take any different steps than usual in light of this recent story? Well, we're seeing a number of people who are clearly changing their behavior because of concerns about legal jeopardy that they may face as a result of this mounting investigation. In the case of Jared Kushner, we heard a lot of calls from Democrats for his security clearance to be revoked because he had sat in on this meeting with the Russian lawyer about derogatory information regarding Hillary Clinton. So he's under some pressure now. The vice president, Mike Pence, feeling the pressure as well. He had his spokesman put out a statement really distancing himself from this and saying that uh, any such meetings with the Russians took place long before Mike Pence was involved with the campaign or was part of the Trump administration. And we're seeing Donald Trump Jr. hiring a lawyer, uh, basically uh, most of the top players in the White House now lawyering up as they try to deal with uh, what kinds of questions they'll be facing from investigators. Uh, You know, as each of these uh, steps in the scandal unfold, we see a number of Republicans who are somewhat distancing themselves and saying, well, the president, uh, you know, we don't know that he's involved, but uh, clearly one should not be meeting with someone representing the Russian government in the midst of a campaign. There were some Republicans who said that uh, they would have certainly called the FBI in such a situation. So there's an increased willingness on the part of some Republicans on the Hill to speak back against these kinds of uh, revelations. I want to address one story that has come up. Politico covered a story about a Ukrainian-American consultant who worked with the DNC, essentially looking for information about Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign manager, and some on the right, specifically Sean Hannity, while he was interviewing Donald Trump Jr. earlier this week, suggested that this situation is a complete equivalent to Donald Trump Jr.'s situation. Potential ties to Russia. Now that you, our audience, have evidence from both sides, you've got to decide for yourself. 
We report, you decide. What's worse? And I'll pose this question to everybody. It raises a question. Are they the same thing? What are the similarities? Well, we can call this the Sean Hannity diversion. This was uh, (laughs) Hannity's attempt to uh, change the topic, uh, flip it it back on the Democrats and say, hey, uh, maybe the Trump shouldn't have uh, had this meeting, but uh, the Democrats have done worse. Uh, Well, they haven't. Uh, They they may have done something bad, but um, it it seems very much uh, of a lesser uh, violation. What happened in the Democratic case was that a a Ukrainian-American consultant gave the Clinton campaign information about the work that Paul Manafort had done uh, when he was representing uh, some elements of uh, Russian society that were against the Ukrainian government. And the Ukrainian embassy in Washington apparently helped this consultant uh, gather that information. But there's no indication that that Ukrainian embassy or any Ukrainians were involved in any kind of concerted campaign to affect the United States election. Uh, So it's not good. Those are possibly troubling questions that are raised about uh, whatever connection there was between the Clinton campaign and this Ukrainian-American consultant. Um, But there's no evidence there of the Clinton campaign coordinating with a foreign government. That is a different level entirely. So, Mark, by now you know the drill. We are at the final question, which is the can he do that question. In this case, the he is Donald Trump Jr. And the question is, can Donald Trump Jr. do this? Can he meet with the Russians to get information about his father's opponent? It's not a good thing, but he did it. And so the question that the investigators uh, will have to figure out is, did it reach a level where it was an illegal act? There is a federal law that says you may not accept anything of value in a campaign from a foreign government. Uh, And in the law, information counts as something of value. So the question that a prosecutor would have to look at is, was something of value actually received? Um, Was there an intent to get something of value? You don't necessarily have to receive it. Intent often suffices. Um, And they will have to tease out what the intent was. Obviously, the email that says, I love it, is tremendously problematic for Donald Trump Jr. Uh, And certainly any attorney would have told him, never say anything like that, never put anything like that in an email. But he did, and here we are. Mark, thank you so much for coming back on the show. You guys should read Trump Revealed. It's Mark's book that he co-wrote with Michael Cranish of The Washington Post for more insights into the president. And you can follow Mark Fisher on Twitter at MF Fisher. Or me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. And as always, if you guys liked this, please subscribe. Review us on Apple Podcasts. Keep listening wherever you get your podcasts. Keep sending me tweets. Keep sending me emails with story ideas. Keep sending me snail mail. I got a lot of that this week. Thank you, guys. We love hearing your ideas. Thank you so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the good-natured and effervescent Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. I'm James Holman, national political correspondent for The Washington Post and author of the Daily 202 newsletter. I'm excited to announce we're launching a new audio briefing called The Daily 202's Big Idea. Every morning, I'll give you a quick summary of the day's biggest political headlines, as well as analysis of one of the day's most important stories. 
You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and on your Amazon Echo device or Google Home. And by the way, if you want to subscribe to the Daily 202's email newsletter, you can do so by visiting WashingtonPost.com newsletters. I'm really looking forward to it. I hope you'll listen. Thanks. The Washington Washington, Washington Post. Post.